friends, and welcome back to the Covey Wellness Center podcast. We are excited to be here with you today, and we have an amazing topic for you. We are going to be talking about addiction and substance use, of course, and families. And so we're going to be giving a nice high-level view of some of the things that we notice when we're working with people who have grown up in a family where addiction has been a factor, um, who are in a current family where addiction is a factor, um, and just really diving into that, that topic a little bit. And so joining me today is Jennifer English. She is one of our amazing therapists here at Covey Wellness Center, and this is a particular special interest area for her. A lot of her background is in working with people with substance use and addictions and challenges related to that, and she just really has a heart for people who are going through these kinds of struggles, and so that's kind of where we're coming from. So Jennifer, I'm just going to get you to start us off. Tell us a little bit about what you do here at Covey Wellness Center, a little bit about yourself just to let people know you a little bit more. Sure. Um, thank you for that introduction, by the way. I think that that was a nice way to kind of highlight um, the work that I do and the fact that I am passionate about it. Um, so, so far, you know, I, I've been here for my practicum, um, just coming up on, I think, about six months. And uh, the work that I've been doing has been centered around supporting uh, individuals that are struggling relationally. Um, so within their marriages, um, or again, relationally within family dynamics, um, quite often there is a, um, a component that relates to mental health that is woven within the context of that, be it that of their own or that of a significant others um, and the impact that that may be having on them. And, um, and then, you know, I've also been fortunate enough to work with some individuals that have been struggling with be it substance use um, or addiction themselves. And again, those that are significant others, so be it family, friends, um, partners, and significant others, um, anyone that's impacted. So mm -hmm. that's what the context of my work has looked like to date. So, and that's the sweet spot for me. Yes. And it's exciting because we took, so Jennifer has an extensive background in working in, in counseling and mental health work before she went back to school to get her master's degree. And she's just coming to the end of completing that. And so if you want to hear more about her journey with that, you can go back to the first couple of episodes in season one, where she's kind of introducing herself um, and her therapy role and a bit about her journey there. You can get to know her a little bit better. But for today, we're really going to focus in on this area, this niche area of work for Jennifer and her passion about that. And I know that I have a lot to learn in this area. This isn't a specialty of mine. Um, I did do the regular studies that everybody has to do to, to come out with a, a master's degree. Um, but it's something that's really fascinating. And I do see the ripple effects of this across the boards in family systems and um, in adult children, you know, who have been in homes with, uh, let's say, alcoholics or, um, you know, other sort of variations of the substance use uh, challenges. So this is a common theme. And I don't, I really don't think, you know, it's maybe sad to say, but it's kind of like cancer in the sense that like everybody knows mm -hmm. somebody who's struggling, yes. like this is not a small issue. And so I think this topic is something that is relatable for just about everybody um, because everybody knows someone who is struggling in this way or is mm -hmm. someone who's struggling in this way or both, right? It's mm -hmm. This is a pervasive challenge mm -hmm. that we have in our society and culture. So, mm -hmm. so let's just start with why, with this question. So why is addiction framed as a disease within the family system? Like that's an interesting way to... Mm -hmm. to phrase what's happening. So can you talk a bit about that, Jennifer? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it's important to look at it or to regard the family as an ecosystem, right? So if we, from a standpoint of, if we have one individual that that is in crisis, um, and so to use some of the language that you've already touched on, and then the ripple effect that that creates within the environment and how that reverberates through the family system and how the biology of each individual looks different. So how that's going to land and how that's going to impact people is naturally going to look different. Mm -hmm. And so within that context, it takes it from being a singular issue, if you will, where we're focusing and honing in on one individual to now recognizing 
the system effect within that, the environmental effect, right? Yes. And, you know, that's a a very simplistic way, kind of a a snapshot, if you will, because there are a lot of moving parts within that. Um, There's an analogy that I cannot take credit for, but I also am at a loss as to where I heard this from. So I can't give credit to where it's due, but I'll just let you know out of the gate that this is not, (laughs) this did not come from me. Um, but I, I love it. And I, I've held on to it for years because of the image that it, it paints in my mind's eye in reference to the fact that nature loads the gun and nurture pulls the trigger. And what I right. like about that is that it serves to highlight that when we look at it from a nature standpoint, and again, say epigenetics. And so those markers are those tags that are placed on our cells and how that influences Um, cellular Mm. expression right and how that changes our DNA remains the same but yet it changes what's going on biologically within each of our systems so that's the nature piece so if we're looking at you know whether or not um, is is addiction genetically predisposed there's definitely information that speaks to that but then we look at the fact that those say epigenetic markers serve, serve to prime our system And so all it takes is something within the nurture. So here we go to Mm. nature loads the gun, nurture pulls the trigger. Something within nurture, within our environment serves to now elicit that. So because our system's already been primed, unbeknownst to us, at the moment of conception, if we're looking at generational and transgenerational trauma as it relates to epigenetics, something within the environment serves to elicit that. We're now triggered, right? And so- the fact that there is that susceptibility to there being a higher prevalence within certain family systems for the presentation of be it mental health disorders, be it um, substance use and or addiction. We see these patterns, right? Like you'll you'll often hear people either in reference to their own families or someone's out or or another person's rather um, highlight the fact that, geez, like there's really like, we see how it's cyclical. Like you can see how it dates back generation to generation. This is not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence. So again, you know, landing the plane here, circling back to the fact that this is, we need to look at, we need to go beyond the individual who is um, struggling and Mm -hmm. the fact that we have an entire system, an entire um, group of individuals who are impacted by that. Yes. So by the by the behaviors that are associated with that, and again, how that transcends throughout the environment and how that lands for each of us differently on a biological level. Absolutely. So so what's coming to mind for me is the fact that sometimes people don't realize even in their own um, being a part of that family system, that even though they're maybe the person who doesn't have the substance use issue or the addiction, their whole paradigm, their whole ecosystem is being affected by being in a family with someone who does, or in a generational connection with someone who does. And so there's this sense in which we need to treat, if you will, the whole picture of that. And so there's Mm -hmm. so much that, you know, I think sometimes we can defer to, well, if just the person who is drinking all the time, get support, then everything will just settle down and be fine in the system. Right. And that's just, that's minimizing to say the least Mm -hmm. and, Mm -hmm. and not really hitting the mark because it's not as simple as just that one person being in. And that's what kind of what I hear you saying. It affects the whole family system, even intergenerationally. Like it's not just your core unit right now, even. Right. And so there's a lot of factors. I always like to say when we're thinking about Um, treatment planning and looking as we're doing assessments to see what people need. It's always a combination of factors, always a combination of factors. And it's, it's not, we, we can't compartmentalize those, those pieces, like you say. So there could be even personality components that predispose someone to, Mm -hmm. um, you know, be prone to addiction or to substance Mm -hmm. use and then how that's nurtured, Yes. Um, nurture has such a positive word, but it could be nurtured in a negative way, right? Like yes. how that's yes. exacerbated or amplified yes. somehow, um, in a, in a, in a problematic way, maybe as a, 
as an outlet for coping and a traumatic situation or there's all sorts of reasons, but we want to be not too narrow-minded in our treatment approach, right? We want to see all those factors. We want to see how people exist within their family systems. And we Mm. want people within that family system, even if they're not the person Mm. struggling with the addiction Mm -hmm. to have support, right? right? That's a big, that's a big heart that you have. I think Jennifer, maybe maybe speak to that by speaking to how that addiction does affect the dynamics within the family system. Yeah, absolutely. I think the first place that I I find myself going to as I'm listening to you speak is again, if we look at it through a biological lens in relation to just even um, the mechanics of mere neurons. And so, you know, um, just the, it, if we look outside of the context of addiction and within and, and within any family system, how, um, say, from a standpoint of emotions, how the emotions of one family member are mirrored, so our neurons will literally mirror, we pick up on that. It's not something that just happens, if you will. There, like it's this is something that 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 originates again on a biological level within us. Mm-hmm. So again, that's something that is not unique to a family system that is struggling with say varying degrees of dysfunction. We're going to see that in any family system. Right. However, you put that into a family system where there are varying degrees of dysfunction, where there is chaos, instability, um, where it may be volatile, you know, the prevalence of domestic violence and intimate partner violence is um, heightened that much more when you add into the mix substance use, substance misuse, yeah. and or addiction. So again, the piece around mere neurons, if, if, if I'm living with someone and um, their behavior is, again, volatile, it's erratic, Um, there's a tendency that I am, again, I'm going to mirror that I'm going to feed off of that energy. Right. Mm -hmm. And then again, how that lands for me is going to look very different than how that lands for possibly siblings or Mm -hmm. whoever else is residing and within that same environment. So, right. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, no, that's great. No, I think those dynamics, I think it's a great point because we, we, we are always learning, right? Especially mm-hmm. in developmental years and in, in, you know, in childhood, but even beyond that, we're responding to our environments all the time. And right. if that environment is presenting a certain way, we're going to respond. I sometimes say we respond in kind, right? Mm-hmm. So if, if the mm-hmm. expectation is, mm-hmm. you know, yelling or volatility or intensity, most often we're going to, we're going to engage with that because that's our normal. That's our learned behaviors. Those are the dynamics, right? We're going to have some direct response to that ecosystem. And if we think about, I love the the idea of an ecosystem, you know, for ourselves and our families, if we think about that, as soon as we Mm. introduce a new factor, Mm. that ecosystem has to, is off equilibrium right it has right. to find its balance and if right. there's those constantly introducing these things and the ecosystem is just yes. not settling not no. able to find no. like i don't know homeostasis is that the exactly. right you know yes, right so, absolutely yeah so there there's this sense in which it just feels that constant swishing chaos and it doesn't mm-hmm. it doesn't resolve because yeah. there's just these these things being introduced all the time to keep that frenzy, to keep that dysfunction. Right. And uh, right. I think people who are listening to this are going to relate to that and say, yeah, I, I've experienced that. I, I've known that in my family, or I've seen that in this way in yeah. my life. And, um, yeah. you know, so it's, it's a tough, tough thing. We recognize that there's lots of ways in which that presents for people um, either again, as an adult um, child who lived in a home yeah. with someone who was behaving in that way, who was struggling, mm-hmm. how to, you know, there's lots of ways that that presents. We have some, some research that shows some commonalities for things like that, but, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. in general, you know, what are some of the ways that we can support people who mm-hmm. are affected by these ecosystems that have been, have been chaotic or are currently chaotic? You know, yeah. what are some of the ways therapy can step in and, and help support people who are dealing with that, that addiction or substance misuse in their families? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm just wondering if I can circle back and touch on something you had said, actually, because it's absolutely uh, it yeah, sparked we, a thought in me. So yeah, let's or, do that or for me rather. So, you know, I think when you were talking about how there are some, some general themes there, right? Um, and so, you know, building on that, I think that 
within the family system, you have a collective group of people that are all attempting to survive in their own way. And so what that speaks to is that uh. they're, they're all in a state of crisis. Um, and that it, you know, it, again, the whole notion of, of it rippling down, it starts with one individual who, who is in crisis themselves and, right. you know, hence the need for the substance use, substance misuse or addiction, whatever it's framed as. But within that, again, the fact that we have this group of people that are all, um, in crisis and within that avoiding it through various means, so the primary right. individual avoiding it through the substance use, but the other individuals as a means to survive and as a means to cope, they may be attempting to survive it through knowingly or unknowingly adopting certain roles within that family system, which okay. in turn also serves to alter that family dynamic and the relational pattern within that system. Um, and I think that that's a really important piece to look at, too, because, again, it serves to highlight the gravity of the situation that instinct, like instinctually, we can develop these coping mechanisms. And the operative word there is as a means to survive. Right. Mm -hmm. That's the gravity mm -hmm. in it is that to navigate. Right. It serves yeah. a purpose just as much as the drinking, the drug use, the gambling, whatever the addictive component is, serves a purpose the behaviors that we adopt as a means to survive that environment and the dynamics within it, it serves a purpose. And I, I, the reason I place so much emphasis on that is because I think at times, I don't want to make this a blanket statement, but there can be a sense of uh, shame, guilt, and remorse attached to some of these behaviors that we adopt as a means right. to cope, as a means to avoid and again, I think that that's where as clinicians, we have an opportunity when based on timing, when the moment presents itself to offer some clarity and to validate the fact that again, instinctively, you did what you needed to from a standpoint of survival. And so mm -hmm. there's a psychoeducation piece there that we can go into within the context of the session as it relates to when I used the language earlier um, with respect to how this lands differently for each of us biologically within our nervous system. So again, from yes. a standpoint of survival, how you are going to show up to this in relation to a trauma response, if you will, is going to look different than possibly how your mom did or how your sibling did, right? Right. Um, because each of these roles um, are, are either elicit a trauma response or are neighboring a trauma response, you know, and submit is a very common one for children in particular. When you just look at it from a standpoint of um, vulnerability as it relates to hierarchy within the family and vulnerability as it relates to just physical stature, because yes. generally the people in their home are bigger than them. So their yeah. trauma response is not going to be to show up and fight it's going to be to either submit and acquiesce and just do as they are told, fly under the radar, not poke the bear, mm -hmm. or it's going to be to freeze. And so that's yeah. where we turn inward as again, as a means to self-protect and to cope. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so again, I think there's definitely merit in talking about some of those different um, roles that we adopt um, mm -hmm. and how that shows up within the family system. Um, the purpose it serves, but also how that can show up later in life um, mm -hmm. in terms of relational patterns with partners, with colleagues, with friends, At work. with peers. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Absolutely. It helps us make meaning of the whole notion of why, why do I do this? Mm -hmm. Why do yeah. I feel this way? Why does this keep happening? Right. There's a pattern here. It helps. So that's the, you know, I, I use, I have a tendency of using language um that pops up both in and outside of sessions just kind of like keywords that i guess i gravitate towards and one of them being which is you know it helps us connect those metaphorical dots in order to make meaning of this the yes. whys because yeah. those are so important so yeah um, absolutely so and i think you know there's there's those dynamics of like you said in their individual situation how did that change the dynamic? And you see people stepping into responsibilities too, not just roles right. in coping, Absolutely. but responsibilities that they're, you know, make caring for younger siblings or yeah. making sure people get fed or looking after finances or working exactly. at a young, like there's all sorts of things too that are, you can yeah. see when you look back, 
these are the things I had to do to find my way through this environment. And, and we can carry those patterns forward, even if we're out of that environment and those patterns aren't serving us because they're just well-worn paths. Yeah. So it's interesting to see, you know, um, again, that meaning making those, those um, aha moments, those insights that Mm -hmm. come when people Mm -hmm. are connecting those dots, like, okay, this makes a lot of sense. I had to take that level of control because everything else was out of control, you know, and this was my way of coping in a totally chaotic situation was to control the factors that I, in my small little person, you know, 10 or 12 years old or whatever could control. And Absolutely. so, you know, we see yeah. so many, so many people recognizing where those patterns are coming from. And then being able to, I always like to use the language of being able to thank them, mm-hmm. like thank themselves, like, look, th- I was doing those things right. the best that I could to help right. me navigate an impossible situation. Yeah. And it served me, it protected mm-hmm. me to the best of my ability and not mm-hmm. perfectly, because there's lots of harm and trauma, certainly, but right. also not to, like you said before, put that shame on yourself about those behaviors or patterns, because they were doing what they were supposed to do to protect you, to help you survive. But right. being able to, in therapy, look at ways in which we can maybe release those patterns, mm-hmm. find new, healthier, mm-hmm. more um you know, person-centered or honoring of the individual that's there and not based on the dysfunction of the the family system, you know, or that history and seeing them have freedom, but not because they're not because of shame that they're running away from it, because they're just saying that I had to do that. That's, that served me at that time to get me through, but I'm not there anymore. Right. You know, this is a different word. I love, I really, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I love the concept of that in relation to um, integrating self-compassion into one's life. And, and it sounds lovely um, and it's necessary. It's, and people are so deserving of it, but it is so difficult when we are looking at recovery for significant others. There's the recovery mm-hmm. for the individual struggling within the family system with substance use, yes. but there's also recovery to be had for those that are impacted by it. And often at times, um, our sense of self-worth is so eroded, it is so mm-hmm. diminished, or it's non-existent, like it hasn't even been a factor because our entire focus is externalized. And again, this really highlights the gravity of someone's lived experiences when they are outside of the context of themselves, majority Mm -hmm. of their developmental years, they live outside of themselves as a means to safeguard themselves from a standpoint of constant environmental surveillance, scanning the room, right? And, um, and again, like in speaking of this, it reminds me of um, some of the work that I've done with people in the past where they've identified as being um, empaths, or they were told that they were, you know, just, you know, extremely sensitive growing up and, and still very much have those qualities. And the place I often go to within my mind, just kind of adopting that curious stance is wondering about, um, well, were you left with no choice but to develop some of those skills? Because right. by being hypervigilant and by um, externalizing things and focusing only on our environment, we hone in on and we fine tune those skills that enable us to, for lack of a better word, pick up on vibes and read the room. Yeah. And that very much neighbors the same qualities and skill sets that we see in empaths or people yes. that are highly sensitive, right? So, yes. and it's not to say that they aren't those same things, but again, I go to the place of the whole notion of making meaning. I want my, my inclination is to dig deeper. My mm-hmm. inclination is, is to go to the, like very much like, again, the clients we work with, I understand the significance of the why. So even as a clinician, I go to, but why, like, where did that originate from? What purpose yes. does it serve? Right. And I'm not saying that's the case for everybody, but when I am working with significant others, more often than not, that does offer explanation as to how they present here and now within Mm -hmm. their relationships as being an empath or a highly sensitive person. When we look at the historical context of that and the environment in which they grew up in. So 
you know, there's a reason as to why substance use and mental health disorders are listed as one of the criteria within adverse childhood experiences. Yeah. Right. And again, yeah. this underscores the significance of it being um, of the focus, not just being solely on the individual who's struggling with substance use, looking at the system as a whole. Because so, again, it's you know, like it highlights the fact that there are short and long term consequences for mm -hmm. these individuals that are experiencing this. And again, like I like to say surviving it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have an entire family system that is in crisis mm -hmm. and everybody is responding in different ways. So, Absolutely. you know, you, you mentioned, um, you know, being a, um, a children in particular. So looking at where they're at neurologically, neurologically from a standpoint of, of development and how that is hindered especially in the case of when they adopt roles where they are parentified or where mm -hmm. they play a surrogate partner to a parent possibly. Mm -hmm. So adopting essentially it's, you know, an umbrella term of reference to encompass that could be just a caretaking role and how that serves to hinder their emotional development. Yeah. Um, and again, that sense of self, there is no differentiation between my parents, my sibling, my partner and who I am. And again, yes. majority of the focus is externalized. So when, when people come to therapy, um, it's no wonder it's a challenge for some people when asked, well, how do you feel? Mm -hmm. It's not a simple question, is it? No, it's not because I've never yeah. given thought to how I feel. My entire focus my means of surviving was again on surveying the environment, engaging mm -hmm. how that primary person, where they were at and how they were presenting mm -hmm. and then acquiescing to their needs in order to maintain the status quo, right? Mm -hmm. So to all of a sudden be asked something that requires us to look inward is completely foreign and yeah. quite possibly at times threatening, mm -hmm. right? Like holy smokes. I mean, if that's, again, if that, if that's uncharted territory, then we as clinicians have work to do from a standpoint of how we navigate that with people, right? Mm -hmm. Like it needs to be something that, um, like I go to the place of thinking that these walls were built for a reason. Mm -hmm. They've served a purpose and it is yeah. not my place to bulldoze through them. So we're going to chip away at this bit by bit. And very much, I'm going to follow your lead in that sense. And so mm -hmm. as much as it is cliche, it's a process when we're working mm -hmm. with significant others, as much as it is when we're working with, with anyone else. So, but again, yeah. it's understanding the origin of this, where this originated from, um, the purpose that it served. And then within that, having um, compassion and, and sensitivity in the work that we're doing with clients. Yeah. So um, you know, I've just, I'm breaking eye contact because I'll be completely honest. I made some notes because there are <laughs> so many, um, different hats that we will wear within family systems. Um, mm -hmm. and so one being, um, another one being the scapegoat. So the whistleblower and the individual mm -hmm. who will tend to name the elephant in the room. Mm -hmm. um, and so this person is often not, uh, regarded fondly because again, they're flipping the script um, mm -hmm. and that can be seen as a threat. Um, so, you know, and again, there's something to be said within that because there is a sense of um, internalized shame that and guilt that um, these individuals will tend to carry. You know, they're often mm -hmm. labeled as being the black sheep of the family because they've mm -hmm. gone against the grain. Um, mm -hmm. And so the shame is internalized as in I am bad. And the guilt is felt as I've done something bad. Mm. So, you know, in both instances, you know, these are things that we can see carried through outside of that context of the family system. Again, the whole piece of how it presents relationally, we see these patterns carried through with partners, colleagues, friends, mm -hmm. um, and pulling from what you said because those neural pathways are so ingrained, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's habitual, it's second nature, it's all you know. That's yeah. what you're pulling from. You've pulled from it your whole life. Um, and so, you know, again, it's it's about understanding and, and offering oneself some grace that, hey, like, listen, I've operated on this level for X amount of number of years. 
And I'm just now gaining some insight and understanding as to why, you know, um, and, and realizing that I want things to look different, but, but that's going to take time. Yeah. You know, these things don't happen overnight. Yeah. We talk, I talk a lot about how, and I don't know, this isn't like psycho jargon kind of stuff. This is just kind of the way I describe it to people is when we have those patterns, as soon Mm. as something um, is happening that our system can frame as, oh, this is like that, Mm. whether that's a, like, um, an unreliable perception of what's happening, Mm. but there's Mm -hmm. this sense in which the whole system kicks in and says, this feels like that. And then all of the stuff comes back to align with that. So this feels like that time when I was out of control because of the situation and then mm-hmm. all of that comes flooding in to inform the current situation, which may yeah. or may not have anything to do with feeling like that or a very small portion. And so Absolutely. there's, there is that understanding to say, oh my goodness, like how much of what is happening yeah. in my life now is fueled emotionally mm-hmm. by these things mm-hmm. that I've carried forward, um, out of yeah. that survival, right out of that trauma. And so we're always having to be mindful of people's windows of tolerance, right? Yes. Because like you say, these are things that have helped keep them safe. Yep. So we're not interested as therapists in putting people out of safety or out mm-hmm. of control or their perception mm-hmm. of control in the therapy, because that's counterintuitive to the work, right? Mm-hmm. We're trying to, to, restore even more safety right show them different pathways towards that to create that in their body and in ways that are absolutely not things that were probably accessible to them right Right. so there's just it's such complex work and there's so many layers to it I think that's a great I know it's cliche but sometimes cliches are cliche because they're true it is a process and it takes time you can't be in patterns for 25, Mm. 30, 40 years. And then in three or four therapy sessions, Oh, I've got that all figured out. Right. Right? It's yeah. It's commitment to the process and gently monitoring our, our own system and our own bodies and our own hearts and minds in the process in a way that's healthy in a way that's healing and not re-injuring. Right. We have to be so careful about that. Yeah. 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 No, that's valid. And I think that part of the challenge in that is when there is that disconnect with self, right? If we are, you know, and this may seem like loaded language um, for some, for others, it serves as I think a form of empowerment. So some people may within their recovery identify as being codependent. So if my sense of well-being, if my being okay, if we just Mm -hmm. simplified it and just kind of leave it as that, if my being okay is dependent on someone else's behavior, the outcome of their day, right? Again, everything's externalized, then, you know, it makes it really challenging for me to um, have an understanding of the impact, the residual impact that this has had and the imprint that it's left on my system mm-hmm. within, within my emotional fabric, within my psyche, but also within my system from a standpoint of you know, biologically where, you know, like the imprint that it's left on my nervous system. So like Mm -hmm. you said, something can present itself that serves to elicit a response that's neighboring or mimicking something Mm -hmm. that we've experienced our entire lives, say during our developmental years. And yet, Mm -hmm. you know, we're 20 years outside of that. It's completely removed from that context. Yet Mm -hmm. our body recognized something. There was something that, you know, we say elicit, it triggered it. Your body went, whoa, 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 I recognize this, be it a sight, a sound, a smell, a touch, some sort of sensation, and we're immediately offline. Our frontal lobe is hijacked, yep. our amygdala, our threat sets, our threat we're sets in survival. We're surviving. Yep. And again, when we look at this particular demographic, if they have been living in a state of survival, if that is what they have known for the, you know, predominantly, then um it it makes sense that that's that, that knee jerk reaction or that um, instant response that they're going to have. Mm-hmm. That's all that they know. It's their norm, right? It's not mm-hmm. until they step outside of that context and have a basis of comparison to go, whoa, this, this feels different. Like it's literally landing different within my body, right? 
Um, and then again, you know, adjusting to that, even, you know, the mm -hmm. fact that the fact that there is a sense of um, calm because there isn't cortisol pumping through my body, right? Due yeah. to high levels of stress. The fact that you live in a state of being activated majority of the time, you learn how to, and I'll say it loosely, but we learn how to function within that. Mm -hmm. And so when that cortisol is no longer present, it, you know, we could loosely say that that mimics like a withdrawal symptom that the individual who's struggling with addiction, when they attempt to cut down or abstain experiences, that's why it is so triggering for, mm -hmm. for some individuals. Right. Um, and well, it's not their comfort zone, not their comfort zone. It's like, it wait, this doesn't feel like anything I've known before. It produces it's alarming. a visceral feeling. It's absolutely, it's alarming. The visceral yeah. feeling that that produces, the physical discomfort, the emotional and mental discomfort that that experiences, it's real. It's not mm -hmm. in your head. No. It's not in your head. This is real. No. Um, but again, making that connection is a challenge because so often circling back to the piece that the focus and the emphasis has been on the external environment. Mm -hmm. right? Surveying it and just, you know, um, mm -hmm. that, that sense of hypervigilance as, as a means to safeguard oneself. So the disconnect between oneself and even, even realizing that they are in a state of being activated, right? There's even just right. a lack of awareness around that. Right. So, well, it's um, what, when you, you just, it's the pool you're swimming in. You're like, right. this is how it's this. I don't know what that feels like to not be in that hyper arousal or mm -hmm. hypo arousal, even or in hypo. some cases. Right. And so yeah. it's like, that's, that's normal, isn't it? Like, that's right. the question. And mm -hmm. I mean, normal is a yeah. loaded word in it. So, but, but that's yeah. the question we kind of like, that's, that's my normal. That's my, yeah. my, um, that's what I'm comfortable with, even though it's very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. it's what I know so mm -hmm. uh, those patterns are really deep and they're they're very they're strong right on yeah. our on ourselves and our thinking all of the pieces and so yeah. it is it's a process right it's yeah. good it's the yeah. good kind of hard that's why I like to say it's like this good yeah. work but it, it's hard um to really be brave enough and courageous enough to step into some of those mm -hmm. conversations. And that's where, you know, somebody walking with you in therapy is so important because these are hard things to do on your own. Absolutely. They, are. they absolutely are. And I yeah. think, so circling back to that last question you, you had asked just in relation to um, why is it significant? Like, what is the importance, you know, um, or the value in significant others um, accessing support themselves? Mm -hmm. And, you know, because oftentimes, um, people will present and they want help for their person, whoever mm -hmm. that is, parent, sibling, partner, yeah, you know, whatever the case is. Um, and in actuality, child, child lots of times it's a child, yeah, lots mm -hmm. of times, absolutely. So and the 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 harsh reality is that there is very little that we can do to help that person. You know, mm -hmm. I, I go to a place of, I think just within um, pulling from some of the components of 12 step program programming that fits and aligns um, for me is I look to the, um, the place of, you know, we, we can't control it and we can't cure it. Mm -hmm. And so surrendering to that and by means mm -hmm. of really honestly accepting that, that, um, if you're coming here, there's very little that I can give you from a standpoint of tools, techniques for you to help your person. Um, yes. What I can do is I can spend some time with you and I can talk to you a little bit about um, the weight in which you've carried reflective of this, mm -hmm. how this has weared on you. Tell me a little mm -hmm. bit about what that's looked like. Um, and, you know, again, it's, it's an unearthing process. It doesn't all mm -hmm. just present within... I, it doesn't all just present within, you know, three to six months like this. Is, it really does unfold over time. And mm -hmm. and in some instances, you know, again, I go back to the neurological piece and that we look at when we're living in an environment where there is um, chaos, volatility, which is often, you know, like accompanied by violence. Mm -hmm. um, and we look at the trauma associated with that. 
Um, there are functional MRI scans that show us that there is atrophy. There's actual shrinkage within the hippocampus, which, wow. you know, stores short-term emotional memories. So the mm -hmm. fact that you can't remember everything could possibly be an indicator again, of just how severe the environment was and the mm -hmm. impact that that had on you. And I, I think as I'm speaking of this, I'm remembering something that Gabor Mate referenced and the fact that trauma is not what happens to us, it's what happens inside of us, right? right? So, you know, like, again, understanding that, you know, well, why is it that, that I, why is it that I can't remember everything that my sibling can remember? Again, I go back to the piece that biologically you're wired different. You're two mm -hmm. different people. So how that landed for them and their perception of it was completely different than yours. Both are valid. Yeah. But again, if that landed differently for them and, and, and there were certain instances that were more traumatic than they were for you, then that could offer explanation as to why there's some short-term memory loss, emotional memory loss, right? Mm -hmm. And then you in turn, you know, are able to recall every single instance. Mm -hmm. um, both are valid. Both are justified. It's just that, again, we're, we're wired differently. So yeah. And both are ways that that particular person's system is coping as coping is yeah. trying to navigate it. Right. And it's, yeah. you know, and this is not oversimplifying, but if you think about something like um, a car accident with four different people in the same car, they experience right. the same car accident, but every single yeah. person in that car was sitting mm. in a different spot was caught by the accident in a particular way, like the driver may yes. have seen it coming. The person in the back seat didn't even see it coming. The right. they have predisposed personalities, injuries, maybe somebody somebody in the car might have had multiple car accidents. Yes, you know, prior to yeah. that. So all these things are going to land within the ecosystem of that person, even though that singular event, mm -hmm. they were all there for that car accident, right? Absolutely. So I think that's a again, I don't want to oversimplify anything, but that's a way for people to understand it's not a one size fits all. And within no. that family system, even though, you know, maybe there were four children in the home, all four children are not going to experience right. their, the trauma that comes inside of them will be different yes. in relation to what they may have all observed, experienced, right? Absolutely. And there's so many factors to that. So it's Very so important so. to really, um, be listening to the particulars of our client's stories and really mm. building our plan. That's why we love client-centered because we're not looking to run people through sort of right. a, a rigid step-by-step -step this, then this, then this, because mm -hmm. it that's kind of assuming that people can just go input output right. um, and people aren't, that's not how we work. No. We're complex and we have, mm -hmm so many different things affecting how this is showing up and, and so much of um, like Bessel van der Kolk's work on the body, right. keeping the score, like yeah. some of that psychoeducation, even recognizing it's stuff that still like blows my mind, yes. how much our bodies carry yes. what we don't even cognitively understand, mm -hmm. you know? And so there's mm -hmm. so much to this mm -hmm. and um, just circling back to our initial thought, which is that, Jennifer has such a heart for people who are in these situations, whether they are the person struggling with the substance use or abuse, misuse, um, or the people who love those people, right. you know, the people who know yeah. those people. And yeah. there's, it's a different type of work, um, but it all falls into this large ecosystem of what's happening in the, in the family dynamics, in the, yeah. um, in the bigger, broader picture. And so, yeah, we want to be there for people who are struggling in this way. Any, any final thoughts there, Jennifer, before we I, I do that for today. Yeah, I do. Actually, I just yeah. I feel like one, one last thing I want to touch on in the work with significant others is, um, you know, it's, it is not uncommon for people to struggle with grief. Um, and by that, I mean that whether or not um, someone has got to a point where boundaries have um, needed to uh, turn into barriers. And so we're looking at estrangement. Um, so whether or not the relationship has been dissolved, 
whether or not just the dynamics have shifted. And so going back to the fact that even though they recognize that there was maladaptive patterns of behavior attached to some of those coping mechanisms, which mm -hmm. served as a means for them to survive, they recognize that they weren't serving them well long-term, hence the change, there can still be a sense of loss within that. Sure. And yeah, a lot of that can also stem back into trauma bonding. You know, within a family system, within a dysfunctional family system, there is a sense of loyalty at times to one another, right? And mm -hmm. it's not uncommon for within that sense of loyalty, woven within the context of that is an element of secrecy. So we all know something or we uh, all know things that no mm -hmm. one else does, right? Mm -hmm. No one else can fully understand the context of this like we can because we've all survived it together. Mm -hmm. um, and so again, loss tends to be a reoccurring theme, however that may be presenting and mm -hmm. attempting, you know, um, Attempting to navigate that is really, really tricky and really overwhelming mm -hmm. and, and confusing for people, mm -hmm. especially when, again, rationally, you know, like rationally, I know that this is not serving me well. Rationally, mm -hmm. I know that what happened to me was a form of be it emotional, physical, psychological, sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. I know that. And yet there's a part of me that's grieving this. Why is mm -hmm. that? Right. And so that, and so that internal conflict and, and that, you know, um, push and pull, especially within parent child relationships, when we look at it through an attachment lens, yes. you know, so in one instance, and you'll love this, cause I know you speak this language. So how it can be both, right? So how is it that in one instance, I can have mm -hmm. such profound empathy for my parent, And yet in the other instance, I am so fearful of them, or I am mm -hmm. just so angry. I hate them. How can mm -hmm. it be like, how, and, and how can so that coexist? Yeah. How can that coexist? Thank you. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and just because, because it's so conflicting, they seem so competing in, in that sense. And so helping people, you know, tease through that mm -hmm. in order to make meaning of it in relation to attachment theory, you know, the fact that these are your primary caregivers. So mm -hmm. again, I go back to biologically, biologically, you mm -hmm. are wired to connect with them, to mm -hmm. want connection, even when your bids for connection are not met, even when right. there is no sense of safety and security, you will still go back to them. Yeah. You will go back to them, yeah. right? And so, you know, understanding that um, in order to free oneself of, the shame, the guilt, mm. the internal conflict. Those are sometimes reoccurring themes that I find present in session with yeah. significant others. Yeah. So, yeah. And I, I think there's even, I agree, like there's so, I mean, grief is, it's interesting. I think, you know, there's so much that we experience. I mean, we could, we could do, maybe we should do a whole podcast on grief and it's broadest terms because you know everyone associates grief with you know the loss of mm -hmm. um through death right but there's so many other ways that we experience grief through losses right. of any kind and and one thing I talk to a lot of my clients about whether it's related to um boundaries due to you know like you said boundaries that have had to become barriers in terms of relationships just for for movement forward protected right yeah. um these hard, hard decisions. And, but there's this also the component of loss is like wishing your parent mm. could be a different parent. Yeah. Like there's this loss of what you might've hoped your parent could be for Absolutely. you. So yeah. it's not, it's, it's not even, it is the loss of the parent and the ability to bond because like you're saying, but it's also the loss of the idea of who the, who you want your parent to be. Right. you know, and the ways in which you can't, you can't have them maybe in your life because yeah. of toxicity or danger, you know, right. But there's right. still this, but that's my mom or that's my yes. dad. And yeah. I wish, we, you know, I wish hope yeah. we could have had something different and that can show up, not just in the family systems we're talking about today, just in right. general, but there's, yeah, there's a lot of grief when, when those those boundaries again have to be established because we don't want to have to have them right 
you know, and we really do long for it to be different. And so Mm -hmm. we grieve the loss of what might have been if Mm -hmm. our parent or our loved one, you know, did their work. Yeah, absolutely. Healed. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, mm-hmm. it's really hard for people. So there's so many facets to this. I, we, we were talking about this before we came on um, and we're recording just about how we're not even going to, we're just scratching the surface. Scratching of this, the surface. Topic. this is, yeah. I mean, you could have, you could have a whole podcast with multiple seasons on into the future on just this work, like in really diving mm-hmm. deep. And so today we're hoping we've just really given you sort of a high level, some points of connection with this idea, some things to think about, maybe some points of resonance for you and your experience and, and some opportunities to understand where, um, you know, therapeutic help might really be valuable to you. And of course, we're here for you for that. And Jennifer in particular has this special interest that we're cultivating in her, that she's cultivating in herself and um, as she's forming in her therapy work. And it's really exciting to see how people are connecting with her for this niche. Um, And so we're, we're so excited to have her as part of the team because we know there's a need out there. So please, if that's you, if you're resonating with this, if you... If you love someone who's struggling, if you're, if you've come from a family system where you see and you're saying just as Jennifer's point, yes, yeah, exactly. Yes. All the way as she's describing this, you know, reach out, go on to CubbyWellnessCenter.com, reach out, see if you can connect with Jennifer or, or someone else on the team, um, to really do some work around these pieces in your life and, and get some freedom and get some restoration and feel like you, um, you know, you have a different kind of hope for your future. Um, so we would love to do that for you and join with you in that work. It's a privilege for us to work with you. So the simplest way to do that, cubbywellnesscenter.com. There's a contact us form. You can fill that out and our screening team will be in touch with you and get the process started or stop in. If you want to stop in and check out our resources in the wellness bookshop, um, maybe there's a book that you'd want to start with that would be a point of entry for you where you're at around this topic. So um, Jennifer, thanks again for taking the time today. I really appreciate your expertise and your heart uh, for the, this dynamic of people and, um, Yeah, I'm just excited to see how this might bless and encourage people as it goes out um, as something we can offer to them. So we're going to sign off for now. Thanks for joining. Thanks for listening. If you are not already following Covey Wellness Center and subscribing and rating our podcast, we would really appreciate it. That really helps us um, come up on the radars of other people. And then what the work that we're doing here can go out and help even more people. So we would love for you to do that or to be in touch with us or stop by and see us if you're local. All right. Thanks for, thanks for joining Jennifer. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Bye for now. Bye.